Hi, and welcome back to the Leading Language and Literature podcast with me, Chris Jordan. In this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Rick Smith. Rick is a former teacher and now provides individual counseling for students working with stress and anxiety. He specializes in ADHD and attention-related disorders and has helped a great many students from his practice here in Hong Kong and beyond. The conversation with Rick came about due to watching him in a fantastic seminar he did earlier this year and also a long-standing sense that despite my own efforts, I may never have been doing enough to support some students who struggle to adapt to the demands of mainstream schooling. In the conversation, we discuss a quick introduction to Rick's career in education, whether there is a recurring need or concern that families often bring to his practice regarding school, how teachers can prepare for a new academic year with regard to implementing regular breaks, written instructions or task checklists for some students, how to manage the balance between tailoring lessons for a student and not alienating them through different treatment, how a form tutor and or teacher could deal with the likes of unfinished homework or incomplete classwork. And finally, the role that the rest of the class has to play in accommodating students with certain learning needs. I found this conversation and Rick's advice to be revelatory. Some of what is said goes against what I've been taught to believe about certain students in my classes. And yet, reflecting on my own experience and reference to research, I found myself nodding to everything that Rick had to offer. Thanks again to him for giving up some of his valuable time to make this information more readily available. If you want to be kept up to date on when educational chat like this happens, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast and or follow me on Twitter at Christian. If you don't mind, can you just give us a quick introduction to your career in education to date, please? Yeah. Uh, hey, good morning. Um, my name's Rick, obviously. Uh, so I'm a behavioral health consultant and a psychologist. Um, really, my, my job is to be helpful. I, I help mostly with stress and health and work habits, um, just the general problems of living, uh, almost exclusively for adolescents. My academic background, um, I have a master's and a uh, doctorate in education. Um, my research was in um, the emotions of learning. That was really important to me. I worked in special needs as a teacher um, and learning support, and I, I taught math and science here and there whenever they needed a teacher. But I, I did that for a lot of years, maybe a little over 10 years in the States and um, what's called Title I schools, high minority, low income schools. And so I worked with like just a really different type of kid. Um, my uh, I think one thing that's really interesting about my background that that was a very formative experience that brought me into getting a second doctorate, which was in clinical psychology. Because my my first five years of teaching was in a in a school where um, a really tough school. Uh, the the principal of the school was arrested um, right after my review with him um, for smoking crack in his office, mm-hmm. and then went to jail and uh, murdered I think six people one survived and he's still in jail today um but he was somebody that was like kind of a mentor and pretty close to me and he had this whole separate like drug-fueled life that was the sort of school that it was that we had metal detectors we had pat downs um uh my, my car was stolen uh when i was there my computer was stolen when i was there um kid shot my 
shot at me through my windows, but it had like a BB gun. So it didn't really do anything, but it was a really, really tough place to work. And what I found was like, if I wasn't on great terms with these kids, like if I didn't have an awesome relation with these kids, like it was literally like dangerous to not. So I always was really interested in the emotional side of learning the, the frustration. Um, so yeah, I did some research in, in that. And, uh, then I wanted to do some work. I went to the second doctorate in clinical psychology and now I work yeah, in a private practice with teenagers, we work on learning issues. The most interesting thing about what I've moving out of education into private practice is I've never once taught less in a subject, um, English, math, any of that. Um, and every kid that I've worked with, their their grades have gone up at least a you know a full point letter grade, however you'd, you'd call it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something really important about that. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's probably a bit more more than I need about my background, but yeah, that's kind of how I how I got here to this call is um, my really trying to get kids on a better path. By kids, I mean anyone under twenty five. You know. Yeah, it, it kind of I don't. It's always misattributed this quote, and I'm not actually sure where it came from, but it sort of resonates that idea of like they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I think that definitely that idea of like emotional availability and emotional connection and um that kind of thing i i I would imagine i've never taught in a school um like that um uh, but i imagine that would be really important you kind of met you mentioned your practice there and um so so presumably when students come to you or referred to you or when families come to you or are referred to you what what are the recurring needs or concerns that they often bring to your practice regarding school and school work Recurring concerns that that come in are are eighty plus percent of them are what fall onto a bucket of what I would call emotional or behavioral avoidance. Behavioral avoidance meaning like like they just don't do the stuff they're supposed to do. Behavioral meaning like they not doing your homework. Behavioral avoidance. It's kind of a clinical term, but look, they're they're avoiding their lives. That's really what what what's going on and. The other, I think the other mismatch that there's always a mismatch, the kids' goals and the teacher's goals or the parents' goals don't align. So when families come to me, it's like, they'll say like, I I want my kid to be really successful. And the kid's goal is, I just don't want to fail. And I kind of want to be left alone. And that difference is really a big difference in how how we work together. Um, The kid has no interest in being successful. The kid just doesn't want to be bothered they don't want to fail but that's not because they don't want to fail they just don't want to be bothered they get bothered when they fail so they just want to be left alone really the the first um hurdle to jump in and i, I think this is an as an educator too is that the the kid needs to recognize that there's something important and worth doing or that there's a problem worth solving very often it's only the adults that have the problem the, the kid doesn't have a problem he's like i'm fine they're really the issue so avoidance is the main thing that we work on um whether that avoidance comes through being distracted um what some people refer to as video game addiction which i'm, I'm not going to call it an addiction myself but just you know so, so you know um or they just isolate themselves in their room that you know social anxiety um and, and i think another part of that that's important to share is that these are the kids that are kind of invisible because they're so socially anxious. They're really good at flying under the radar. And it's often a surprise for schools and adults in their life to even know that it's a 
problem because that's kind of what the kid has been trying to make make happen like i don't want to be noticed and they're really good at it so so there's a lot more kids than i think people are aware of mm. um yeah avoidance is the main issue mm. um so i mean this this kind of idea of um it's it's often you know avoidance is symptomatic of i would assume you know yeah like a lack of confidence in something or as you say like priorities not aligning and, and these kind of things and at the at the beginning of the year uh in in this school and the last school that i've worked at we've got like an excellent uh, kind of Senko department or um, IN department, whatever kind of, you know, acronym or, or name that you're working with, ostensibly kind of a department that helps to support students who are struggling with either, you know, a, a learning need, a different learning need or anxiety or, you know, these different kinds of things. And I think all of those meetings begin uh, in earnest with kind of lots of different strategies, conversations about profiles. And there's so much literature available on, you know, the, the the school kind of portal, so to speak. So we know who the students are. We know what their, uh, their needs are. And there's lots of different strategies that are suggested. So, uh, you know, we might be told to implement the likes of regular breaks or written instructions, task checklists. Um, in your opinion, like, what's the practical approach that a teacher should take to this? Um, or maybe even a parent, I suppose, like should... Should teachers, like I'm aware of all of these different strategies that, that are written on a given student's profile, let's say. Um, but sometimes I'm confused about should I, should I be having an initial conversation with, you know, the, the, the student themselves? I always take time to kind of speak to last year's teacher and maybe the IN support that's, that's affiliated with the student. And like, in your opinion, what, how should teachers be coming at this in terms of the levels of interaction they're having with the student initially and moving on um, from, from there? Yeah, I, I think I can start with a really simple like rule of thumb. And then I'd like to explain it, why it's so important which would probably be more complex. Um, I'm going to share a story too about, um, so look, anything that is going to make the kid more dependent on the teacher is a bad idea. Uh, anything that's going to make them more independent, that's a really good idea. Um, that doesn't mean totally ignoring them and uh, leaving them alone to fend for themselves. I mean, if there was a, a baby crying in the corner that was hungry, we wouldn't just you know, figure it out, kid. Like, that's not what I'm saying. But um, if if doing th some of the things that you mentioned, uh, regular breaks, um, let's just take breaks as an example. Yeah. They seem stressed. Um, or they have a stomachache. Uh, or they tell you they do. I need to go to the nurse. I heard that a lot. Um, or I just need to go get some water. And this was often recommended to me, especially in the behavioral. Um, it was called emotionally behavioral disturbed. That was how I worked at. I, I love how the language changes. We would, could I, I could never, I'd probably be sued if I called a kid behaviorally disturbed, but that was like the politically appropriate way to say it when I was doing it. Um, let's just imagine that that kid says, I need to go get some water. I'm feeling stressed. And I say, okay go get some water. And the kid gets a little bit of relief from their stress. I mean, they're legitimately stressed and they're, you know, they're in class and they're anxious and they go get a break. Um, that relief 
is a form of what we'd call negative reinforcement. So negative doesn't mean bad. It, it just means relief from something unwanted. So the, the kid gets some relief from walking out of the room. It's it's like uh, you're super thirsty and you take a drink of water or you're getting rained on. You put an umbrella over you. Um, you're you're really broke and stressed about money and you find five dollars in your pocket like the, the sort of like relief giving that you get that removes a pain super reinforcing the brain will backtrack all the way to the very beginning of that process and repeat the, the entire chain of events that led to the relief this is how the the brain um sort of how the brain learns right so here's this kid in class and he says i don't feel good i'm gonna go get some water and you say cool go get some water that was really independent you raised your hand and asked guess what happens the next time uh the kid feels bad goes and gets some water and then i need two water breaks and i need 15 water breaks i'm not going to come to class tomorrow and this is how this cascades um in my experience anyway mm -hmm. and what's really interesting is that the kid isn't actually making it up that process of learning that the brain does it's not just like manipulate the teacher and say it. The kid actually will experience anxiety. The, the feelings and the thoughts that initiated the cascade of events that led to getting out of the classroom are reinforced. One place that we see this is when parents let their kids stay home from school because they're anxious. Um, the next day comes or the, you know they didn't study for a test so the parent lets them stay home. The kid will still feel anxious the next day. I'm saying the kid like it's like a single person, but but just the young person, right? The mm. however you want to call it. So your question, like teachers are told to do these things like breaks or task checklists. And there's um there's some benefit to doing checklists and, and to writing, but if it's in service of, and this is important, if it's in service of making the kid feel better, it's really going to hurt the kid over the long term. Um if it's in service of relieving their anxiety, so uh, they say, will you check my work before I submit it? What's the purpose of that? Um, and I've had students that have asked me to edit their paper 10 times, a, a college essay, you know, in my clinical practice, can you look at my college essay? And, you know, and on the 10th time, I'm like, hang on a minute, I think I'm negatively reinforcing this behavior. They're actually anxious. They get so much relief when I do reassure them that it's okay they'll end up sort of making up uh, problems, mm. which are real problems to them in that sort of reassurance seeking. Another really common intervention that I think is a terrible idea is moving a kid's seat closer to the teacher. Really kids are, are some, sometimes are struggling with that sense of um, separation anxiety, um, feeling unsafe. And so we say, you know, when they're in the back of the room, they're fidgety, they're distracted, they're off task. I mean, they're really anxious you know and i get to see these kids behind closed doors and they're really anxious kids and we say well let's move their seat to the front of the room where they're closer to an adult and if you just think of like you know human bonding and and how mammals work like adults and that with children know this instinctively you bring a child closer to you when they're in distress and they mm -hmm. calm down and when you're apart from them it's really hard dropping a kid off of the the schoolyard and the first day of school is like both of them are in massive amounts of distress um leaving your child with a babysitter for the first time massive amounts of distress for the parent i'm mean, just being physically distant and physically closer is a mammalian response it's based in like attachment theory we know this really well kids that don't have adults close to them suffer
And so teachers are asked, hey, move your kids, uh, move, move your student's seat forward closer to you. And look, you're reinforcing the anxiety itself. And it may help in the short term. It may even help over the course of the school year. And when when we get to year 10, 11, 12, and, you know, those final years, these guys are falling apart. They're looking for boarding schools. They're mm-hmm. they're they're lost. They're miserable. They're have they have anxiety disorders, eating disorders. I mean, and they start as young people with like, I'm nervous. I don't want to go to school. By the time they're in year 13, they're like, I don't think university's for me. And also I can't talk to people and I've been doing nothing but throwing up all month. I mean, it, these things progress, right? So, so we get them out of a bind when we let them out of class for a water break in year six. Mm. And then we're out of options in year 13 because they've stopped coming to school. So the, go back to that rule of thumb. Um, if it makes them more independent, do it. And if it doesn't, don't. And if it if it's in service of making them feel better, it's a terrible idea. I I, I just think I I don't think I can stress this point enough. Um, the goal for kids with differences is the goal is to do what's right to do the work. When the goal becomes to feel better, and very often it is because adults do not like to see kids struggle. Um, it, it's not helpful for the child and it's not helpful for the adult, the adult either. Mm. I think I can see the parallel in, in adults. I can think about my own behavior and the ways in which that, that example of, I need to go to the toilet. Yeah. I have students that immediately come to mind that I teach presently who always seem to need the toilet at roughly the same time of the period in which we're learning doesn't matter if it's first period of the day last period of the day first period after lunch they they need to go to the toilet roughly around the 20 minute mark and yeah i've always kind of treated it as oh they need that kind of mental break and this kind of thing but but now that you say that i think that's a really important that's quite a revelatory thing to me like i can see the parallels in my own behavior like if i'm in the gym or i'm exercising and things get a bit too tough i'm a bit like mm, i'm being pushed into like an uncomfortable zone here where I'm not really, you know, I would get the phone out or I'd stop and go to 7-Eleven for a bottle of water or, or something like that. So I can, I can understand the parallels and um, yeah, I think that's really important because that's not something I've ever come across in, you know, training or kind of conversations with regard to um, SEN students or even just students generally who are like struggling with anxiety. And you're choosing the gym. Kids are not choosing this experience. And, and that's a different process of, of the brain. You know, when you're choosing to do the things that make you anxious, you're actually in a pretty good position. Mm-hmm. And what, what we find with young people is that they're not choosing to go to school at all. In fact, they're being forced. So they're already in a state of, I don't want to be here. And now things are getting worse. What do I do about this? Mm-hmm. And they don't get the chance to learn that they can cope with the anxiety of the 25 minute mark. Mm. Um, they're never going to actually grow and learn that. Right. And so it, it sounds terrible to say, actually, look, if you have to go to the bathroom, you have to go to the bathroom. That's totally different. But if you have to go to the bathroom because you're stressed um, and this goes back to my, you know, I, I said that my windows were shot out. Um, this kid, I can tell you about this boy. 
it was during a time where he was like insisting on leaving the room and I was insisting on him staying in the room and he escalated into insults. And, uh, I should probably say that it was, we had this law in Florida that you couldn't go on to the next grade until you pass these tests. It was called no child left behind. And, um, that meant that in sixth grade, I had like 18 year olds. Uh, so this was like a grown man in my room telling me he was leaving. And, you know, I was like maybe 24, you know, trying to tell him that he wasn't didn't work out, <laughs> but this was the end of the result of so many times of like, yeah, you can do whatever you want in order to feel better. Mm. And today you can't, well, that didn't, it's not like he just said, okay, I'll cope with it. I mean, it, the anxiety went up and that that's really, really tough, you know, insults start and, um, the very human side of a teacher, gosh, that's tough. You know, like it's, what do I do when I'm in this position? Mm. Um, I, I had a roommate in college. Uh, she was, she was deaf and she still is deaf. She, she was born deaf and she was adopted by hearing parents. And, um, the college that I went to was next to the Florida college for the deaf and blind. And, uh, it, it got a little bit of notoriety. I think Ray Charles went there and a couple other famous, uh, uh, whatever the point is living with her was so insightful to me, her, her adopted parents. Um, when they met me on the first day, they said, Hey, we've kind of set up the house for her. The lights go off when the doorbell rings or when the phone rings. Um, they more or less said, don't do anything to help her out. Nothing at all. Mm. If, if the alarm is going off and the lights are flashing in the house and she's not waking up, do not wake her up. Yeah. Like she needs to be late and she needs to figure this out. It sounded really cruel at the time. It makes total sense. And she's totally independent. She's a teacher. Um, she can have a a group of friends that are speaking friends and, and work with them. Like they told me, like, don't write her notes, slow down if you need to. But, and it, this is like, um, I think sometimes we see in movies, like people lose their legs in a war scene and they have to like walk again, you know, like, you don't want to give them a chair. You really want them to struggle. That, that's how they learn how to walk. That's what this is about too. Um, the, the thing you said though, about like written instructions, there'll be some pushback on this. Um, the, the, the young people need to be writing the instructions too. not only the teacher, the task checklists. It, it's not the teacher doing it. I mean, I would encourage the teacher to do it. So as long as the young person is doing it too. Yeah. Does that make some sense? Like, yeah, it, yeah. Doing with instead of doing for, you've probably heard these sort of sayings. Yeah, I think and I even, I mean, coming, the fourth question I had was like, how can I manage the balance between tailoring lessons for a student and not alienating them? But I think I've kind of, based on that previous answer, almost reconsidered how to conceptualize that as an idea that I think you know, you're really, ideally, if if all the other students in the class have built up or the majority of them have built up a certain level of independence with regard to how they do their work, it, it should really be, I mean, through conversations or working with the student that you're, you're helping them to get to that level um, anyway. So I suppose if I was a student and the teacher came to me and said, listen, I want you to be able to do this on your own. That to me would be enough of a motivation already to be like, 
well, all right, if, if, if that means that I'm not going to keep getting these check-ins that no one else is getting, I'm not going to keep getting these different worksheets that other people aren't getting, I'm not going to feel individualized, then yeah, maybe he's got a point. Maybe I do need to um, uh, work with him in the short term to kind of become more independent so that I'm not getting this, um, you know, I wouldn't use the word preferential treatment, but different treatment, I think. Um, because we, we have like amazing staff in this school and in my previous school where they're kind of, they're there to assist the students who, you know, uh, are perceived to need assistance. But in some classes, it's just one student who's got kind of like a paid IN assistant. And, and it's, it's quite obvious that, um, they're the only one getting a little conversation with this amazing staff, like amazing staff member, all the kind of iron stuff I work with are incredible. And some students become relatively robust and they're like, yeah, you know, they, they kind of get on with it. Some are like really resistant and they do not want to work with anyone um, in a way that shows that they're, that they're different in, in some way. So I think that, would you agree with that, that, you know, when you have these conversations with students that I'm going to work with you initially to help you become more independent, do you think that's um, a relatively like motivating um, kind of uh, a motivating sentiment that would allow students to um, like accept the help initially, Rick? I want to answer your question indirectly. Actually, um, I, it, it's like a yes and the the teacher's goal is more than just, hey, I'm going to back off. It's it's also to express it. I, I would want you to add in a, a statement about how confident you are that they can do it. Oh, yeah. By the way, only if you really believe it, they're going to see through it if you don't. What I mean by that is, um, hey, I, I saw you're struggling with that. Uh, it's really hard work. I'm really confident that you know how to figure this out. And I'm really confident you know how to do hard things. And then you can back off, right? Like the cultivating that attitude of confidence in a, in a young person is um, something trivial about that. I mean, this is, this is when a young person looks at the adult and says, uh, when, you know, they fall down in the parking lot as a kid. I, I mean, back up. I have a nephew and um, he tripped and fell, skinned his knee. And his mom, who's my sister, was sitting next to me, and she's like, "Oh my god, it was a it was a tough one." And uh, I said, "Stop, <laughs> you know." And I'm like, "That's amazing! Look at you! You can get right back up. Look yeah. at you walking. This is incredible." I think every parent's done some version of this. I, that's why I don't mind sharing it. Um, it's really not that much different in a classroom. That confidence is like absorbed by the young person, and they're like, "If the adult thinks I'm good, I can probably handle this." Mm-hmm. And sometimes saying to a kid like. I could help you this afternoon if you want it. I also think you can probably figure this out on your own. Um, you don't, you don't really probably don't need my help, but if you do, I'm here. But I'm I'm really certain you got this. Um they will become more confident and they will figure it out. Even if they figure it out to a level that's a lower mark and they're stressed about that, you would say the same sort of thing. You can handle a little bit of stress. I'm, I'm sure you got this. So it's, it's not totally backing off. It, it's just when you are backing off, it's, um, you know, let's go back to this bathroom example. I need to go to the restroom. You know, I, I know class is really stressful right now. Um, 
if it is for the restroom, you, you could probably hold it maybe a few minutes, more minutes. Um, I know I'm venturing into controversial territory here with this, <laughs> but telling a kid that you're confident that they're going to be able to tolerate the stress is sometimes all that they need in order to learn how to tolerate the stress. Sometimes they're so anxious. They see their parents, you know, the worst thing I hear a parent say in my office, uh, it's the, it's like the number one way, uh, statement that goes with kids that avoid things. I just want them to be happy. Mm. You know, I just want them to do well, which what the kid here is, is there's something really wrong with feeling anxious. There's something really wrong with failing. Um, the, the most protected kids that I've worked with, um, have just, they've struggled so much, you know, um, and, and I think, I think you might know what I mean by protected kids. Like sometimes kids actually have like physical bodyguards, but I, I don't mean that. I, I mean, like they have tutors, they have, um, coaches, they have personal, uh, assistance, yeah. you know, looking over their shoulders. They're miserable. These kids are miserable. They're terrified of feeling anxious they're terrified of stress they don't know why but every time they feel stressed somebody jumps in and says oh my god let me save you and what i would really want is for a teacher when a kid feels stressed to, to say like yeah this is part of it and you're doing great you can yeah. you can totally handle it keep going yeah that makes that makes total sense to me i mean even just from a personal point of view reflecting on my own life and, and like my time in school and, and like positive a lot of what you're saying obviously uh, pertains to positive reinforcement and it goes it does go such a such a um a long way a lot um, most of what we're talking about i suppose are processes that get us to the outcome and and this question is very outcome based so uh, what i wanted to ask was like how should a form tutor uh you know someone with pastoral responsibilities for a student and or a teacher deal with the likes of unfinished homework or incomplete classwork. So I, I accept that that's an outcome, um, but how should we be dealing um, with that, do you think, in, in your opinion, Rick? And I, I think um, two grades should be given. Um, the failing grade for not turning it in is the one that goes in the books. And the actual grade that they got on the work, if it ever gets turned in, should be given mm -hmm. back to them. Um, that's, that's really the most, th there's nowhere in life that's going to be more accommodating than their house. And then probably after their school. And I don't know anywhere in life where unfinished or incomplete work is acceptable. Um, of course we need to help them along. So if we want to say like, Hey, the first time you turn an assignment in late, you know, I'll, I'll give you half credit for it and yeah. I'll show you your real grade. When I said failing, I mean, half credit didn't mean zero, but, but you, you know, we're not trying to punish them. But we know what happens if you do the opposite. We know what happens if every time they turn in late work, it's cool. Just as long as you get it in by 12.01 on Thursday night before the last day of the term assignment that was due in September, um, we're fine. And and we meet we, again the next year and they've not changed. They've not improved. They, they've not learned... Um, to put 15 clocks in their room so they can everywhere they look they can keep track of time they've, they've mm -hmm. not picked up any of these skills what they've learned is every time i'm in a state of distress people come to my rescue and care for me and if the if the formula is express anxiety and distress um 
equals <laughs> adults express care and comfort in yeah. return and make accommodations this is like a way that we that kids get cared for you know like the, they're not learning how to express their needs up front and that's really what we want them to do so how do you deal with unfinished homework and incomplete classwork um what we know is that if you don't deal with it meaning if you extend the deadlines or you kind of allow these special like well they take extra time to process okay cool they should still turn something in even if they even if you're going to tell me that they have a processing disorder or they have a language disorder you know um i've grown up with dyslexia the the first book i wrote was uh, it's called stop reading and it's a book on how to read which is a little bit ironic but it's it's how to read if you have dyslexia which is like you look at titles you look at pictures you come up with questions you know even if somebody has like severe dyslexia writing is so challenging and you're teaching a writing class and the essay is due you know it's a 60 minute a, a timed essay something like this uh they should still turn in what they can turn in finish the rest later let's say it's a homework assignment you give them a week and they come to you on friday and they say like uh, it's on my home computer or google shut down or whatever all the things you've heard mm. um you should still hand in what you have done if it's six words you need to hand in your six words i'll take the rest later i'm going to grade the six words as the assignment when you turn the rest in, i'll give you an actual grade if you'd like but like that's it, you know, and I, and I want to tell you in practical sense, um, Manchester University is a, in the UK, a student of mine that I worked with um, when she was a high school student in Hong Kong, had all these accommodations and she gets to university and their policy, I love it. It's they, they get two assignments a year that they can turn in um, late, get the full grade. And beyond that, they get 40% um, of their actual grade and their actual grade given back to them mm. and it's really no exceptions i mean unless you're like in a car accident or something mm. and even then they still expect you to turn in what you have done already um i can tell you that her first year in university she turned in two late assignments and her second third and fourth year she's turned in zero late assignments so it it, it works practically it's hard it's stressful um but we know the opposite doesn't work i think that that the, the key thing there i i the human side or the you know the emotional side the empathic side i'm not sure what to describe it but offering them the grade showing that look i did actually read it and i did think it was you know that this this would be this would have been my feedback and this is you know xyz it's so easy to fall into that trap as a busy teacher of okay well great i'm not going to grade it and you know that can be not as destructive but but it, it 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 doesn't always help and i think that that's really important what you mentioned there rick about the idea that you know look what you could have got if if only you were you know a little bit more organized and this kind of that's such a more empathic conversation to have um yeah you know, it's painful for the kid it's yeah. the, it's it's confronting for them yeah. to see their failure in real time yeah um the the again like it's it's i'm sort of reconsidering this question in light of everything we've talked about today which has been um you know fantastic like really revelatory to me but so, some of these students who are um particularly anxious or you know are, are learning um with a particular um like need um in in in, in the teacher's mind and that kind of thing one one other kind of um aspect of the classroom which i've picked up on over the years is their relationship with other students and students perceptions 
of them as a learner. So obviously the other students around them are not going to be aware of whatever kind of prescriptive profile we we put these students into, but they 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 are aware that um, certain students act differently from others, whether they're asked the question in class or whether it's to do with paying attention and this kind of thing. And I've always wondered whether, like to what extent the rest of the class have a role to play in, in accommodating students in this way. So I think, um, do, do you ever have kind of conversations with the students that you've seen about that? Or do you have any perceptions about, yeah, the rest of the, the class's role in, in you know, uh, helping these students to accommodate to life in school? I have these conversations all the time. Mm. Um, there, there's a real human need for a sense of belonging. And I don't think that's any more apparent than when we're adolescents. Um, you know, as adults, we can kind of hide it. Oh, I don't need anyone. When we're, we're kids and teens, like we really struggle if we don't have friends to sit with at lunch, we just would rather not go to school, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so how do kids get that need for belonging met? Um, well, sometimes it's, they want to be special. I'm smarter than so-and-so I'm taller. I'm prettier. I'm funnier. Um, they have all these identity I'm different and, or special in some way. And that happens with kids with learning needs too the oh i have adhd i have dyslexia i'm special in this way um i i recognize i I disclosed i had that earlier but what i'm saying is like using that for a sense of belonging what happens when they do that is that you know mentally they see themselves as special and then without realizing it they've also made themselves different which means that they're also more withdrawn and more isolated from their friends so they end up feeling more more alone, more isolated by these differences. We, you know, I really, when I work with kids, I, um, especially with the anxieties and, and about school, tomorrow when you go to the lunchroom, I want you to look for all the ways that you're the same as everyone that you look at and come back and tell me how many, how many similarities you can find. They don't do that. Mentally, they go in and look for all the ways they're different. So the question is, what role does the class play in, uh, in accommodating them you know, what we find is that when other peers start accommodating their friends, they're full of resentment because now they're thinking, well, I'm not different. I'm not special or they want to become special or different in some way. And so they might do whatever they need to. Um, and then you have a lot of kids that are just feeling really isolated and, and lonely, if not really resentful at the person who's taking up, um, taking the class in a different direction. So w- we, we don't make accommodations for them. I, I work with um, a couple students that are on the autism spectrum or have autism, we'll say. It's very obvious that they are different. It's very, very obvious that they have um, needs in the classroom. And I don't, I don't know any kids in their lives that would, I mean, sure, there are bullies that exist, but like the general kid is like pretty welcoming and like, do you need some help? Um, but if we're going to, if we're going to say like, Hey, all of you need to, you know, nobody's allowed to say this, uh, make this noise in class. Cause it's going to trigger so-and-so, um, people in class start avoiding that kid altogether. They, they start isolate. They don't, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, we don't want to make others tiptoe around it. They, they get resentful they, and they don't know what to do about it. Um, it feels unfair. Um, it, it's not good for anyone. 
really, we treat them as if as a normal person, you know, if they're in a wheelchair um, and they're going up a ramp and they can go up a ramp, you don't push them up that ramp, like let them go up that ramp. It feels so cruel to say that, doesn't it? Um, but we don't just leave stairs there. You know, we don't just say, figure it out and walk. I mean, we, we help when we need to help, but we, we want, yeah, we want, uh, we want friends who can be independent friends, you know? So I, what role does the class play in accommodating students? Um, there be confident friends. I don't know. Express confidence. How, how would you say that? Um, mm -hmm. I, I see this a lot with brothers and sisters, siblings, you know, one sibling has um, a learning need or an anxiety disorder and gets all these tutors and all this attention from mom and dad. And every time they struggle, mom and dad come to their rescue and the other kid is totally ignored, mm -hmm. um, left alone, and then hates their brother or sister because they get no attention because it's always about, it's always about so-and-so's OCD. It's always about so-and-so's ADHD. It's, you know. Like, can't yeah. we just hang out? You know, yeah. And it's I, not. It's not healthy. It's not healthy to grow up that way. I, I don't think. Yeah, I think. Um, again, it's kind of made me reflect on on the questions that I've sent you here in terms of as we're talking about outcomes. Again, if we get to a point where there are multiple students in a class complaining, whether you know out loud or or privately, and and this has been my experience in the last few years about individual students. And the way that they're treated or treated differently or then then obviously the process has gone wrong and maybe like reflecting on what we've said today um part of that is that kind of learned dependency that, that you've talked about like so um so concisely here rick it's that idea that that student has learned to be dependent and is kind of acting and behaving in a way which is is problematic for themselves i guess in terms of their learning and their independence but depending on you know their personality and their particular need it might then bleed over into the way in which other students in the class see them or uh perceive them and, and that kind of thing so again i think it's yeah it's it, it goes back again to that kind of like process that you were um that, that you've alluded to earlier in terms of the, the relatively new research coming out of can i can yeah. i share one just one quick story and i, I think if, if people understand this they'll understand everything there is to know about um working with young people um you you said that you know they learn to be dependent and you you probably have heard this term learned helplessness yeah. um it's been recycled for like 60 years now the it's intuitively it, it makes sense in, it's entirely wrong. And the researchers that did the study came back and said we were entirely wrong. And I want to share a story about how this this phrase came out. And then what what the, the researchers came back and wrote like a 30-page paper that said basically we're sorry, we got it wrong. And I'll tell you what mm -hmm. they found and why it's so much more it makes so much more sense. If, if so these uh Seligman, I think is his name, you know, these two young guys start university and the research assistants in a psychology department and their professor their advisor says we need to do a study on um you know human psychology we're going to do one on dogs and they create a study where they put dogs in hammocks um three groups of dogs uh the, some all of them are in the hammocks um some get shocked and they're allowed to escape and some get shocked and they're tethered and they can't escape and by shocked it's uh 64 times and not just a little bit 
the dogs are in a lot of pain, right? So they do this study over and over again, and they find out that the dogs that are allowed to escape eventually escape. And then the dogs that are tethered don't escape. Even when they untether them in the second and third rounds, the dogs just stay there. And so here are these like young, empathetic guys. You know, if you go into a psychology degree, more than likely you're you're somebody who wants to help other people. You know, you're not a sociopath. I'm sure it's true out there. Anyway, um, so these researchers conclude, oh my gosh, the dogs learned how to be helpless. And um, they came up with this term, learned helplessness, and it gets recycled through education constantly, you know? And um, and so then as brain research starts unfolding and we look at like how learning happens and where um, different patterns of behavior get sort of stored in the brain, um, they went back and revisited the study 50 years later and they published the study, um, you know, learn helplessness 50 years on. And here's what they said. Um, we were young watching dogs get shocked was really hard for us. Mm -hmm. Um, the dogs cried. It was what we found out was that when the dogs cried, the study ended, we turned off the machine. Uh -huh. We thought like, okay, we have enough data. Let's stop. The dogs didn't learn that they couldn't escape the dogs didn't learn that they were helpless they learned the same thing the other dogs did they learned how to make the shock stop they just learned a different way they learned to cry and to be in stress and and to express that loudly yelping dogs getting electrocuted would make me stop the experiment instantly too as soon as i had enough data i would be like oh i hate that i did this the study was repeated on humans um to uh similar to similar findings they said learn helplessness, learn helplessness. They went back and did it again. If you watch, if you watch a human get shocked, I mean, <laughs> their face shows it. And researchers would say, you know, this people, the study subjects would say, like, when is this over? This sucks. I'm, you know, this hurts. I don't want to do it. This make it stop. And what they concluded was obvious, but not true. It was obvious that, that they were helpless, but it wasn't true that that's why what they had learned what they'd learned is by saying make it stop make it stop that it would stop yeah and you know if you understand that in the context of a, of a teacher when you have a kid uh who's in distress it's not that they learn that they're helpless they know how to do the work you know I, I talk to kids all the time like do you know how to make a planner yeah do you know how to keep a calendar yeah do you know what time it is what's the date today they know these things do you know how to do it do you know when to do it yeah 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 why don't you do it I don't know. Hmm. And what we find is they've also learned that when they're in a state of distress and chaos, adults jump in and change assignment dates and give them comfort and rub their back and say, like, how can I be here for you right now? And we teach kids from a very early age that when you express distress, I'm going to be there for you. This is how humans develop. And then if you throw in a, a parent who's really uncomfortable with stress, you know, the parent, I just want them to be happy. Um, they see their kids stressed. The parent feels stressed. They jump in and rescue. These dogs, the humans, um, it's more like learn helpfulness. You know, they've just figured out a different strategy. So all we're trying to do with kids with learning needs is give them a different strategy. Yeah, I think... Um... The, the only thing that remains for me to say, Rick, thank, is, is thank you very much for 
what has been yeah like a genuinely fascinating um conversation today like for for context obviously you 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 did do kind of like a public speaking uh not public speaking but like a school speaking event uh, earlier in the year and um that that was one of the main reasons why i got you on but i think yeah so much of what you said today is not necessarily challenged you know my my perception of things but certainly kind of like evolved my understanding of um, why some things really work and why some things really don't, um, and and why that's why that's the case, and uh, yeah, that kind of it's 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 really really helped me kind of even just going forward today. Like in my mind, I know that I've got one or two classes today with students who are the type of students that we've been discussing, and it's 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 going to have an immediate impact with those students once I've had time to kind of reflect on it so thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak to me today and sharing everything uh, that you have thanks Chris yeah it's really nice to talk to you